first big project, you get to write like five different musical universes like this with traditional instruments, with uh, perfect clients, it would seem. And all of a sudden you're like, can it only go down from there? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Audiophiles Podcast. I'm Malik, one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined here today with Knox, one of the smartest experts in the business music field there is. We were so lucky to have Thomas Brunet, the composer for Chance of Senar. Chance of Senar, which we covered back in episode two. Oh, yeah, just a few weeks ago. It it was so great to have him on. We replied to his comment, and we said, do you want to talk about your work on the show a bit? And we're so excited to show it with you. This is the first episode of the new Audiophiles series composer spotlight we're going to talk about their process we're going to talk about their work but we're also crucially going to get to know them as a person direct from the horse's mouth themselves we still use that analogy by the way horse's mouth i feel like i mixed up a metaphor there no horses don't talk anymore we get to hear a lot about his process creating the music his inspirations his guidelines in the creation of the music but we also get a more behind the scenes look at how he gets the job, how he looks at the music business as a whole, what are some of the technical barriers and some of the technical advantages involved in being a game composer today. Like we said, this is a follow-up to episode two, Chance of Senar. We did a track-by-track analysis. When we played it, we found it to be a straightforward, simple, but very deep in its singular mechanic of solving puzzles by deducing a foreign language in the game. That's right. It's capturing the feeling of waking up in a foreign land and not speaking the language of the locals and having to figure it out yourself over time. We really hope you enjoy this really special episode of The Audio Files, where we put the spotlight on the composer. Welcome for our first composer spotlight, Mr. Thomas Brunet. Yeah, as I was saying, I think the, the this perspective is really important. And we sure have a lot to gain from... Uh, just talking about music and games, a lot of people ask questions because they generally don't know what we're doing. And I'm guessing also as a, as a session singer, a lot of people will never imagine what you're doing in, in LA, like what, what's your daily job. And I think it's, it's fascinating to have a platform to explore this. And we're talking hours and hours of soundtracks sometimes, so years of research, and there's a lot to unpack. So interesting to me, though, that you use the, you use the word research there. It was, uh, there was a lot of research involved, although the, the brief I received was so precise in a way that I, the research was made easy by the fact that uh, Julian Tomati developers really, really knew what they were doing and what they wanted from the start. So there was, as you know, five different peoples, five different groups in this tower, which all have had their different uh, specific cultures. And everything in the game derives from these cultures, like the puzzles, the languages, the glyphs, the music, the instruments. Um, so I guess the research was then a question of how do we invent something that would sound like what these cultures would come up with in a musical sense, um, and also sound like it's been there for thousands of years. And then uh, 
obviously follow the instructions, uh, very precise instructions. Right. Although I, I never felt, you know, uh, restrained by the uh, developers or the brief or anything like that. And it was it was very very comfortable for me. <laughs> I'd love to is really... learn more about that brief that you got. We really wanted to give each level its own character and its own sound. Also, underscore in the sense that sometimes you get this little suspenseful, um, almost sound designy kind of pads. And as you as you noted, sometimes the music doesn't really use themes or melod melodies or anything like that. It's more like motives that appear, disappear, and reappear. And it's basically like some kind of uh, great textile that just was ripped at some point in time. And then you can recognize the pattern that, that was formed before the rip happened. So this this is what we went for, basically using a different color palette for each of these levels and then try to make them as coherent as possible because when you say a color palette do you, are you talking about obviously each level has a distinct visual color palette but is there's also a distinct musical color palette exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. color could be uh what you you would say the 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 first people from the um uh how do they call them in english uh, the, the devotees religious ones devotees yeah. yes yes uh devotees use uh way more string instruments and almost nothing else you could uh, hear the same motif played on the strings and on the flutes depending on which level you are but the color is different and obviously like the, the musical color obviously it's it's useful because we wanted to express that these people used to know each other and talk to each other and they they cannot anymore they can't understand each other anymore. So you were um, consciously trying to portray the main theme of this game through the score. Yes. Like what what I think music should do, that, that's a grand statement, but what music could do uh, in, in the best circumstances is to say something that the rest of the game couldn't really say because you don't want to say it outright because the the basis of the game is you have to use your own uh, observational skills right and skills of deductions to understand the world because nothing is explained to you so a lot of things are explained through puzzles and even uh, the shape of the glyphs but then the overall like the overarching story of this tower and these people you could observe like the, the the sculptures on the wall and kind of get a sense of this but then the music kind of comes and confirms it although it's it's i guess it's mostly subconscious at this point you don't really click that oh my god this is the same motif as the devotees used in the so these people used to be linked i don't think you would make this kind of deductions unless you were clearly a musician or, or looking for this in the music but i i think it is felt more than observed i guess so what is that process like and how do you approach working with music that's actually meant to be heard by the players of the, and the people in the world well what i firstly what i did was ask the developers outright what what's our 
resource budget involving, you know, assets. Right. What kind of musician can you animate? What kind of instruments can you put in the world? So, and when you're talking budget, just to be clear, we're talking in game dev budget. We're 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 talking about resources being computing, yeah, computing power, not money and, here. And right. Also, production uh, capabilities, because uh, you know, there were like basically three people did the entire visual part of the game, and most of it was Julien, which was my uh, direct. How do you say it? Contact. He was my, or... my 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 boss in terms of right. musical um, compositions. So, sorry to sidebar on this for a second, but I wanted to know what was your uh, process. How did you come to get this job? How did you get connected with Julianne? And uh, what uh, was your role? Or you are you part of the studio, or is it just a contract uh, basis? Or uh, yeah. So I I am a freelancer. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a lot of in-house composers. Like, I know Riot has some. Um, Bungie used to have a composer. Um, but then the huge majority of us are uh, freelance. Right. Or have their own production companies or, or similar systems like that. And what happened to me with Chance of Senar is like, it never happens. Basically, they found me on Twitter. And they saw post, and that, that's to say the, the importance of when, when you're an uh, independent artist like that trying to find work, uh, the importance of showing your work online and also communicating, being part of the discussion around the area where you live, because that's when you're, you're going to meet people face to face and that's where relationships happen. Right. And, you know, everyone knows uh, Williams and Spielberg are doing most of their films together. And the, the same kind of relationships can build, can be built in games, I guess. And what we did with Rundisk was really, from my point of view, with this kind of relationship where, you know, you will want to keep working together as long as possible and, uh, you know, in the, the best way possible. So they found me. On Twitter, they uh, looked at my post and they listened to my music and they found that I was making very specific different types of music they were looking for. And they had this document, this spreadsheet with all the different musical cues they needed with, uh, you know, emotional descriptions. Wow, like so you got a very needed. detailed brief. Yes. Which um, is not always... I, no, no, no. It's, it's, it was really comfortable, as I said, because Julien is also a musician and he's been an uh, um, artist for decades now, so he knows, and a, a freelancer, so he knows how to speak with us. Right. Um, basically, and we had, I had this insanely detailed brief and then I had references and then... Um, even if I wanted to kind of break this, I still I still could do it. And and he would say, "Well, that's not what I thought, but let's keep it. It works. It's nice." So it it was really a, a, an ideal situation. So you found anyway, the team really easy to work with. Yes, I guess it's also a matter of size. Like two people doing the entire game is way less. Um, 
open to confusion and quid pro quo. And, you know, communication in a big team can be a huge part of your time. Have you worked on some projects with larger teams and experiences? Now I'm, I'm working on a somewhat bigger project. And it's at the beginning, it's a bit, you have to find the right person to ask these questions. If you want to be as efficient as possible, you need to know, I guess, two or three people in the team and, and have them answer your questions because otherwise you'll just get lost in, in uh, like digital paperwork and, and phone calls. But then when you're just working with two people and one of them programs the entire game and the other one does 99% of all visuals, you know, it's easy to find answers to question. So with him programming, I'm curious, what was your role in the implementation of this? I had none because they also have a sound designer ah. uh, who was the, the only one touching the Wise project. And I was like, nice. I just have to write my music. So what was, what were your deliver what were your deliverables if you don't mind me asking? Then sections sometimes it's not the most interactive score so the the exports were a lot of basically just loops and you know a few action scenes needed a lot more granular thinking and and but we're talking like maybe 3 or 4 cues out of how many 30 I wow think. okay so how how much of the game was completed when you got started? Did you get to look at gameplay? Did you get to look at concept art? What kind of things did you get to behold? Well, they they just had they just signed a contract with Focus Entertainment, the, the publisher, and they've they had completed half. The and game. what what year is this? Twenty two. Twenty two. Okay. Yeah. And around March or April 22, they contacted me and they already had half the game done, which is why I guess they had the contract with Focus, because you could see these two guys just did half a game and it was already looking very, very well, pretty original, pretty well thought of and, you know, straightforward. Um, they didn't go into a thousand different mechanics, a thousand different right. directions. Uh, even if the idea sounds insanely good at some point, and we did this with the music as well, so I am I, 100% sure they did this with the whole game. And they looked at their ideas and they said, is this original enough? Is this fun? Is this necessary? And, you know, if uh, if I guess if at least two of out of three of these questions were answered by a yes, they would keep it. I am pretty sure it was something like that. And That's they, so cool. Was that an actual, these questions you're asking, was this like an actual thing you dis you discussed with them? I Well, what we did with the music was um, ask at the beginning, like what kind of, what degree of dynamism do you need in the music? And the first thing we thought was we couldn't afford a very dynamic score, firstly, and secondly, it would be very distracting. If you, so to you I want to make sure that I'm understanding right that turned dynamism to you or the dynamic. What does that mean in in this context of music in game music? It means it means a, a interactive score. Like basically, you do something, the music reacts. 
Right. And you would do that in great lengths in, you know, action adventure games or RPGs or, you know, like... We're talking about when the boss gets down to low health and it adds a new strings line. Yes. A new string, right. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And with Sonara, you have almost no action, almost never... Um, you almost never need the music to change rapidly. And if you did that, it would be distracting or annoying or both. And yeah, we just decided let's go for a more linear linear approach, which means the, most of the tracks have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And they will almost never di- differ from one playthrough to the next. Now I got to ask what like as a composer did did you prefer that or or would it make any difference to you if they asked you to chop it up and then you heard it in a million pieces when it, it wouldn't make any difference like I think what it amounts to what is best for the game in the end and obviously you wouldn't write exactly the same thing if you knew it would be uh, interactive score but I don't think there are limits to what we can do now with uh, software like Wise and FMOD. Well, and so, then, so what differences would you make if they asked for an extremely interactive score? What what would you have done differently? Well, I would have thought out in advance what type of interactive score we needed because you can easily do a horizontal approach where you skip from one section to the next and transitioning in inside the timeline you know from section a to section b at a given point and section a loops until you've reached the transition points so that that would be the horizontal approach and i guess uh, it's not very different from uh, linear composing and then you have the vertical approach where layers can appear and disappear like you were saying the boss is 30% 30% life and you have a new string line because it enters phase two of the fight or whatever. Right. And there's a million other uh, possibilities. Like uh, you could choose to EQ some part of the screens of the strings if something happened in the game. And you have to take this into account. But if you, if you don't need interactive music and I guess most games would probably need some level of this except for puzzle games and yeah. really atmospheric stuff and not as atmospheric uh, that's not a word uh Sonara is a lot of meditation basically and you have oh, to interesting concentrate as a player on what you're doing you have to think though basically what you do in this game you don't have an axe you don't have a sword you not you don't have fireballs you have your brain and you have to think to get out of this tower and get up. So if you, like for instance, when you enter a new zone or go back to the previous zone and the music were to change every time you do that, firstly, you would have to wait, I don't know, one bar, two bars, two and a half bars for the music to change. And if you <laughs> if you do that quickly enough, then it's just a jumble in your ears and your just going to open the menu and put the music volume to zero. And that's what we wanted to avoid like the plague. And we've all, we're also obviously gamers and we've all felt this where I love this music, 
it's amazing, but this is now the 80th time I've listened to it and I can't bear it anymore and I'm just going to cut it. And you feel bad because as a musician, you're like, oh, but there's so much work and I usually don't. Right. I, I find that especially like, like music in a boss battle. You know, when I'm really frustrated, like I'm already experiencing the emotion of frustration from this boss battle. And then I hear this annoying, like intro into the level again. Oh my God, I have to hear this again. Like that's the, some of the worst. Unless you're uh, writing the music for uh, Baldur's, Baldur's Gate 3 and you're writing the best boss battle music ever, then maybe, <laughs> maybe refrain from uh, looping it too much. Or we actually had a system in Sonara to prevent the loops from uh, coming back too often. And there are large wow. silence uh, segments, like basically yeah, every that was loop. Something I noticed that I would maybe hear the music when I, the first time I entered a zone, but then didn't hear it when I came back to it. So that was yeah. all intentional. Yeah, exactly. We, uh, we had this system where we would think about how, my, how long does the player need to stay in uh, one zone, you know, and it's dependent on the number of puzzles and the complexity of puzzles, and also how many times they need to backtrack for to complete the game. And we were we would uh, decide then what the music would do if you would leave the area and come back. And sometimes the music just keeps playing at volume zero. So when you come back, it fades in, and it's not. The beginning it's it's the middle because the the track kept progressing or um sometimes Wait, so you're it saying just, it's still playing uh, it it's still playing but it's playing at volume zero well actually it it, it just kept into memory the, the the playhead basically on this file would be uh the same spot when you would come back wow uh, and sometimes it just uh, went back to the beginning of the track and we also had a limit on the number of loops you could trigger because you don't want to be like in the third level that's where you've already translated two languages so all the mechanics are known to you and we can just leave you out in the open and the third level is a really big one and almost that's the bards right yeah the bards the bards level is a very open one in contrast to the first two levels, which were very, there were a lot of compartments and a lot of invisible gates that were actually puzzles you need to solve to progress. And level three, you can explore almost all of it without necessarily solving puzzles or understanding lifts, which means- I remember finding it a little bit overwhelming when I arrived at that level and I yeah. suddenly had, I, did, I didn't feel as directed. And that's, that's on purpose. Exactly. Well, the feeling they wanted you to feel was, you know, arriving in a country where you don't understand the language, you don't understand written language, and you have to deduce, okay, this means uh, I need to go left, and I need to ask this guy where I, where I am right now, because I need to go there. And this feeling of being lost, it's, it's on purpose. Well... Like a few several minutes ago, you mentioned, and now we're back to the bard level. So I, I need to know. Uh, <laughs> you, you said uh, for for budget reasons, uh, technology and money wise, there were some instruments for animation on screen that were off limits. And I gotta know what instruments are harder mm -hmm. to animate than others. 
I have absolutely no idea because I just asked the devs, you know, <laughs> what what uh, what do you have? And they already had up to the third level. And after that, you don't see any characters playing instruments or they're just uh, assets from uh, the first levels reused. So they had a loot, flutes. And basically, when you encounter the loot player in the first level, that's just one instrument. And they already had this character in this animation. So they just directly asked, Okay, write something for loot. And I didn't really have to ponder anything. But then with the uh, theater play, we didn't have all the characters on stage, I think. Or maybe they did, but they didn't know if they would be visible or if they would be animated. I don't, I don't remember exactly what, what the questions were, but I remember we had to determine whether or not flute and strings would be kind of on the forefront because you would see them on screen and it ended up being flutes and violin which is not on screen i guess so yeah a lot of instruments are not on screen but you're focused on something else that something else at that moment so i just said eh, let's write something <laughs> nice and see if it looks good even without seeing the percussions or the violins playing on stage. And, and yeah. yeah, because we couldn't really afford animating an entire ensemble. And obviously you don't and see having fingers, all synchronized you know, to the music. You, you don't see strumming, you don't see fingers. It's not the last of us, you know, we don't we didn't have this kind of budget, <laughs> we didn't capture anything. That leads me to uh what what I really want to know as as a musician. Um who found the musicians? Did they leave that up to you? Did they bring on the musicians themselves? Where'd you guys look? That kind of thing. Uh, it was all up to me. So I started uh, first. I needed a studio because I didn't. Um, I mean, I had a few leads, but I never recorded as many instruments before. It needed to be in in a professional studio, not my home studio where I do my own stuff. It's it's. It is what it is, but, um, you know, this needed a little more. So I visited a few and met with the people there and the people in the studio in Arcachon, Studio du Bassin. I met with Stéphane, which is the, who is the owner of the studio. And he was a composer for 15 years already in films, documentaries, and he knew a lot of people. So basically he introduced me to Silva which is the flautist, flutist, flautist, how do you? So Sylvain introduced then the, the entire uh, ensemble because he knew basically everyone. He worked with tons of people. He's a very, very talented flutist and he's been basically all over the area in the Southwest. I, I don't think you would find a better musician or, or, or a nicer person, actually. So, yeah, it, it was also a very nice human experience, you know. Did you write think, every, all the parts out in MIDI first or what, what was your process for that? And what did you hand uh, the musicians? I had to write demos pretty fast for validation. So I did the mockups and then I wrote the sheet music. I had help with this as well, like all the copying, all some tracks needed 
orchestration. So, you know, I had I had one person help me with this. And then I gave the musicians all the parts, which uh, there's a funny story about this is we printed out, I don't know, 150 to 100 pages of sheet music and parts. And we had two piles of paper. One had red little dots on them and the other pile had yellow dots. And the red dots was that we absolutely imperatively need to record these. Otherwise, I'm in trouble. And was and this like in a day was, session? How long uh, did you we have? We had three days in total. Three days in the studio. Strings, one for uh, woodwinds and uh, an extra one for the clarinets and the vocals. And yeah, it was tight. Fortunately, we had like international class musicians, which they went through the red pile like butter. And we didn't even touch the yellow pile because basically there was no time. So a lot of stuff is MIDI in the soundtrack because... You know, that's what it is. And we ended up recording 11 instruments with six different musicians. And wow. it was it was a wild three days. It was it was awesome. I would recommend this to anyone. Just basically sit there and, you know, this these sessions, they're a, a tremendous pleasure because you get to hear your music in a way you would never have imagined if you give a, if you give your page someone who knows what they're doing it's like is this is this even my music anymore you know i wrote the notes i know what's on the page but and it's it's absolutely marvelous and then there's another yet another class of musician which basically who basically direct the entire session themselves these people are like machines, not in the sense that they don't have human emotions. They have, they are overflowing with human emotions, but they are machines in the sense that they hear through this, these pages. I mean, they're not the most uh, complicated music ever, but still, they just sight read it. They have the right emotion, the right feel. First, first take is wow. good. Let's go to the next take. And they basically just, we're so used to film music sessions that it was a breeze. Uh, although, if you had if you had asked me at that time, I would have said um, I'm about to crumble into pieces with stress and worry. But now I'm like, yeah, it was it was awesome. Would you say it's it's normal for the composer to get to sit in on these sessions, or or were you or were you a lucky few? You know. I would say I, I would not understand the composer not wanting to be at these sessions unless they're remote, but then you would still no, there's no way you would not want to be there. And you need to be there because you are responsible for the output. You know, it's not the musicians, it's not the engineers, it's you, the composer, that deliver it. At the end of the day, you're responsible for everything. So it's as much a duty as it is a pleasure. And what pleasure? I mean, I would <laughs> I would gladly pay to do this again. That's amazing. Well, did you did you need to like uh when you were in the studio, did, were there things that you heard that you were like, this doesn't work? Or or, or were you things that like, oh, I gotta add this or or anything like that? Or was it exactly the way you were hoping to turn out the first first swing? Most 
of the takes were really good. Like the first takes were usually really good. And then we recorded strings together. So one violin, one cello, and they were in separate rooms, but they could still hear each other. And they would just sight read one take and then lay down their instrument and say, did you not, were, were you not a little bit low on that E flat at measure 39? And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, I would understand sight reading perfectly, although it's it's kind of black magic, but I would understand. I know that you can achieve this with practice and decades of practice. And I would understand listening intently and and you know saying oh that e flat measure 39 is is too flat but then doing both at the same time i was like man these people are magicians well that's so incredible to me especially because what you were asking them to do was probably more than there was a, definitely like some extended technique i noticed on some of these instruments like the flautist there i don't know what terms you would use but like the blowing out sound or right mm -hmm. like well, I, I didn't, some of them I wrote down on the page and the orchestrator help, helped me with the, you know, how to uh, communicate this on the page to the musician. But other times it was just, as you said, um, improvised, like, oh, what about we tried more air in the flute? And so Sylvain is like a veteran and he knows when people say more air in the flute, he knows what the technique is, even though, you know, you might but, just uh, do that little, like this. These little extra sounds you added, like uh, with this extended technique, it gives the score a, such a feeling of like charm and whimsy. Oh, that's 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 so nice of you to say. It's It's the best compliment you could actually make because we really wanted to nail this. And obviously, I didn't want to be the, the, the weakest link in the game, uh, so to speak. So I, I really tried to, I don't know, get in the mold of this universe. Although it's not really a mold because I, I got to experiment a lot. But you know what I mean? In the fact that we had only modern instruments in the studio meant we were kind of not forced, nothing is uh, mandatory there. It's music, so we do what we want. But we also needed um, real folks, players, to associate this music with really old age. And it needed to sound ancient. And the way to do it is usually with unusual techniques or extended techniques, uh, which means uh, maybe not using vibrato, vibrato at all in the strings or um, adding more air in the flutes or singing in such a way that uh, these instruments are so modern instruments are so perfectly tailored for a pure sound like the violin for example is has been refined for centuries to sound yeah pure and not gritty like a, a fiddle or a, a, a peasant uh, violin. It's an instrument that is supposed to be played in a 25-piece section. And if you add a lot of harmonics, if you add detuning, if you play it like a, a fiddle or if you play it any differently, you wouldn't be able to have this huge orchestral sessions because they would not exactly sound right. 
But we were aiming for the opposite of this, and we wanted the the high levels of impurity. Because how did you do that? You, well, firstly, you can just say, okay, we need traditional music that's not from anywhere in the world. We need it to remain fictional. We need your instrument to sound old. And most musicians would already have inclinations as to how they want to try uh, to make it sound this way. And that, by doing this, you also allow your music to resonate in a way that wouldn't be possible if you told them, okay, I want this extended technique and I want this note to sound like this and I want you to stop here and I want you to do this and do that. And so the first uh, ingredient I would say is to let the musicians, uh, you know, exercise their craft. You know, they've yeah. been waiting for these kind of moments for decades. Experimentation is the key and trust also. You have to give your baby to someone else. And I, I you still have some level of control, but at some point you're making, I think a video game or a soundtrack is something that is bigger than uh, one people, one person. You have to, and you don't have to. <laughs> Nothing's mandatory. But <laughs> I mean, it, it would seem to me like a great shame to not have lived through this incredible experience working with a team and with musicians that are like on my own i would never have made half of this because you know i'm not a cellist i'm not a violinist i i and all these different sensibilities add up if you have kind of the same vision it will i guess end up being something that um, people feel is genuine. What does that authenticity mean to you? Oof. I guess one has to just dive in and take risks, measured risks, maybe. Just whatever the length of the leash is that you have with this project, like you couldn't write something, uh, you couldn't write a, a, a fanfare, you couldn't write a metal cue, but you would have a degree of liberty, right? So you need to explore this and try to expand the, the boundaries of what this freedom is and just not try to imitate or innovate at any cost. Just try to make what's best for the game. Can you Discuss. talk to us a bit about how different how different studios approach that differently and at different levels of the industry you go about that differently? Well, I, I can't speak for huge teams and huge studios obviously but the it very much depends whether they want to or they have the budget to hire several people for the audio and what i've witnessed is either the person in charge of sound design will also implement the music because they already implement the sounds so they are the ones with the most level of expertise like the highest level of expertise with uh, softwares like wise and fmod we use to implement music in games composers don't usually have the same level of uh, uh, mastery over these tools, but some of them do and really well. Um, so it also happens that you implement your own music frequently, and then you have unicorns who also like do everything 
And that would be really small teams because they want the whole package for for um, less money because they don't have the resources to hire a composer, a sound designer, and so on. Yeah. Ultimately, I don't think it matters to to the studios if you do everything you, yourself or if someone else does, as long as everyone is on the same page. And again, if you don't know how gay music works, you won't be on the same page. It is the middle of the show, and you know what that means. Suffer the problem. We'll do the problem. This is our first big step in this channel. We are really, really excited to share with you our first composer spotlight episode. This platform built around elevating video game music is worthwhile. And uh, if you're listening to this right now in the week or even the month that it came out, congratulations on being a part of the movement early. A lot of big changes on our Patreon. We've got a $3 a month tier. You get an actual card sent to your email inbox. And our $5 a month tier is going to get your name read out loud on the show. That's right. We're calling that our patron tier. You can still be a part of this movement by sharing our shorts on Instagram or TikTok. And if you still want to stick around, you'll find us on on Discord. You could join our Discord server. All right, let's get back to the show. I also want to take time to get into you as a composer more. Part of the other goals of this thing we're doing with the audio files is to highlight individual artists, the work that they're doing, and the careers and tells what I think is some untold stories about what it's like to compose for right. games. So would you mind just like giving us the old like How'd you get into this? What do you want to be doing with your career? All of that kind of thing. Sure. So um, I started out as a percussionist in mostly orchestral settings. And I bridged, I branched into guitar and piano later in my life. And I actually had a good seven years working as a French literature teacher in high school. And then I decided my uh, teaching days were done and I quit my job as a teacher and decided to try my luck as a composer. So this was like two years prior to being hired by Rundisk for Chance of Center. And during this time, I obviously posted a lot of music on internet. It's still there. And that helped me a lot uh, to, you know, forge my sound, my craft, know how, like what kind of music I wanted to be writing. And also I spend a lot of time learning about marketing and communication, social media, all this kind of stuff. It's something you have to think about when you uh, don't have the client base at all. It's it's a part of the job that I frowned upon a lot. And I still do sometimes when there's stuff to do. And you know you're going to spend your whole day either writing emails or uh, posting on social media. or But it's never actually such a pain to me because I know why I'm doing it. And it's never it never feels forced. So in a way, it's always like I just need to talk about this because if I don't, no one's going to do it. And then I tried basically every social media out there and ended up deducing that Twitter and LinkedIn were probably the two 
most effective ones for games. Well, it seems least. to have worked. I mean, if you said that that's how they found you, right? Yeah. But then I also uh, cast my net pretty widely and tried Instagram, Facebook, and it, it never really seemed to click. I guess there's a generational divide between Facebook and Twitter first. Firstly, no and then the people don't look for the same things on these sites. And if you don't think about that, and if you just use them blindly, then your efforts will it'll basically be a, a wasted effort. So I, I kind of stopped uh, communicating on, on Instagram or just really episodically. And so yeah, most game devs were on Twitter, and now they're kind of migrating slowly to Blue Sky. But the, the most effective professional, professional-wise is still ex-Twitter. And then LinkedIn is great for um, everything very official, very, uh, how to say, uh, it's, it's definitely less relaxed than Twitter. Right. But still, still when, when you get industry connections, usually you want to use LinkedIn. How do so, you go about expanding those industry connections and what are the networking opportunities for you in your career so far that have been really impactful? I think I've been very lucky with this because NAR has had a huge repercussion on my life and my career already. So I've really seldom had to reach out to people and it was usually the other way around. I don't know if I'm right to uh, do this, but I've had already huge opportunities coming my way thanks to both the game and its reception and also the way I'm easily found, I guess, on online. If you type Chance of Center soundtrack, if you type my name, you can find me. Uh, me and my music and my basic contacts and that's basically all, all you care about is people will find an email address or a contact form or a social media link and they will find uh, online players for your music and that's the essentials i guess and then um yeah connections through linkedin come from people i've worked with already recommending me very little cold outreach because I personally despise when people do it to me. And no, I, I, I'm usually flattered actually when that happens, but the, you know, the, the little pang of what, what, uh, who, who, who is this and what they want with me? <laughs> what did I do? And usually we are, firstly, we're very many composers online so much so that you would be hard pressed to find an official job offer for composers in games right there's like one or two each month and 10,000 people uh, apply almost on the first day and you're like this is very this is wasted effort there right there it it happened that i uh, applied a few times but then it's just if People don't recognize you and don't know you from somewhere. And I'm guessing it's the same in entertainment uh, all around. They will most likely go to the person they know or someone recommended by people they know and trust. And it's just human, you know. It's, there, I think no... that you're onto something there. That's been my experience yeah, I, as well. Yeah, I often hear people say, oh, the nepotism and, and this kind of uh, theories. 
I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but this is not what happens in 99% of the cases that people just want to work with uh, people they know and trust or people recommended to them. And now, like you probably encounter that too, right? As a gigging musician. Yeah, I guess. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People call you if they like you and know you. And if they don't know you or don't like you, then they don't call you. Yeah, exactly. And they would probably not answer your call or, or would just politely tell you they're not interested. And it's, it's, it's human, I guess. And it's, the, it's just the fact of our industry that you wouldn't give 50,000 bucks to someone to handle your project if you didn't trust them. So when when they contacted me, uh, Randisk, about Chance of Senar, when they contracted me, they um, I had to write demos, and that's that's perfectly normal yeah. um, process. But others just don't need demos, and I like when can you start tomorrow? Oh, good, here's your contract, or uh, send me your contract, and I will sign it. Sometimes it happens like that. So. You just said something that sparked a question for me, which was uh, in our industry. What industry do you see yourself being in? Are you, to what extent are you in the games industry? To what extent are you in the music industry? I am very much in the games industry. Regarding marketing, like music marketing, I mostly market myself as a games composer, but I am a music composer who happens to be a gamer and a lover of games and very much uh loves the way his career has taken him deeper and deeper into games so i'm not i'm not saying i wouldn't write music outside of games but my it's just the way things happened that i do have a lot of games and i guess i directed my efforts towards game music but uh, it wasn't a conscious effort of saying I want to be a game uh, composer. I would, I'd say, I would have favored this if I had a choice. But then it's very complicated in France to be just a music composer. Yeah. Um, because if you work in in films, you have to collect your royalties, what we call droit d'auteur. They're not exactly working the same way as royalties. And it can be a pain for game publishers to talk and to estimate the what kind of money they would need to invest in a composer that's in the French PRO. Right. Called right. And right. Right. if you are a member of SACEM, you can work in films because then you can collect your income, your royalties, because the upfront fees are very small compared to games and in games it's the total total opposite if you are a member of SSM, then publishers and developers will shy away from you and there's a very long history about the, this this fact and i know there are contracts between certain publishers like ubisoft which are obviously huge and they can afford to have people in uh, accounting who are they, have, paid they have accountants and lawyers. <laughs> yes, and there, there's, there are some heavy calculations to do when you're a huge publisher and you have several composers you have to pay royalties to, as opposed to percentages set by contracts. For instance, as I understand it, uh, American law is very much 
what you get is what you write down on your contract. Yes, there's an agreed split. Yes. In in France, the law kind of states that some, um, like TV, for example, they all pay um, rights to the PROs. And, and so just clear, are we talking, we're talking about publishing rights here, not the sound recording rights. Is that as split up as separately in France as it is in the US? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sound like recording uh, rights will belong to the person paying for the recording. But then so there, you, who there owns, are... By the way, I'm just curious, as a side note, who owns the masters to chance? Rundisk. Rundisk, yes. Yeah. Yes. And as long as you have a trusting relationship you know, it it doesn't really matter who owns them because, you know, you're going to, if I wanted to, for example, extend the uh, soundtrack and do a second album with the remaining tracks that are in the game, but not on the album. And I had the funds to do it. I just know they would say, oh yeah, do it. Because, so do you retain your publishing? Nope. So by that, I mean the, the actual, uh, Composition copyright? Do you retain that? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like French law is very, very strict about this. I can't like it's illegal to sell or otherwise give away your basic rights. Like no right. one can say like ghostwriting would be totally illegal in France. Just wow, because... yeah, that's totally di- different than how we have it set up in the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant with the difference between royalties and, and what we have. And so anyway, it's it's complicated and people smarter than me have been working on this for, for at least 10 years now and it's still ongoing. But yeah, I, I couldn't easily uh, switch to, say, film score writing because of this legal oh. predicament in France. And yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If, you know, if I were to write music for an American film that's been screened all over the world. I would get my fair share and my income, but for the territories of France, it would be a bit of a pickle. Anyway. Wow. So that, that's, I love this nitty gritty conversation because I think that these are the kinds of conversations that we need to be sharing with each other as musicians, as an, as an industry to kind of help each other out, right? And understand what's normal and what's not. And especially when that gets so complicated when we're talking about different territories like the US versus France, that must be. uh, So I I think I'm really impressed knowing, seeing you as not just uh, the artist, as the composer, like doing the actual art of making sound into emotional meaning, but also the business of being a composer that must be a very fine line to walk and doing all this administration and royalties as you're saying and the marketing of it but how does that does that ever get in the way of uh actually working on the art of it well i'm not gonna lie uh at first i didn't know what the hell i was doing so you kind of learn from your mistakes and fortunately i didn't do any any uh, rash decisions or, or big mistakes, but this is, yeah, it's a fine line <laughs> to tread. As you said, you, you're constantly fighting the urge to just leave it for other people to decide and 
that's when possibly you you your career will not go the way you intend it to because then anyone can decide for you so yeah you have to be um knowledgeable about at least the the not necessarily in the details but about laws and specifically music laws and how they relate to the games industry because yeah. these two industries i found are very much opposed to one another at least uh, from from where i am in france i would say the music industry is very attached to their way of thinking and their way of protecting artists in the games industry you will find a very software centric philosophy in software in 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 uh, programming for instance royalties don't exist and you you wouldn't uh, pay a programmer monthly fee for the exploitation of his work but then artists uh, at least in france musicians are used to it being the other way around and wow it can create very deep confusion in people and rather i mean to avoid this kind of confusion and and a lot of efforts and a very long procedure to get to the bottom of it even french publishers games publishers would have an easier time hiring a foreign composer it sounds like you've learned a lot about the business of how to be a composer in the games industry in France. Well, yeah, I spend a lot of long nights reading. So if you could go back, I'm curious, if you could go back to like yourself when you were starting your career or like just still mm -hmm. in school, like what would you, what advice would you give yourself? What would you say? Hey, make sure look out for this kind of thing. Look out for the, look out for people who ostensibly tell you they're your friends because usually friends don't really need to say that and i've had a few a few adventures like this where ah uh, you don't really need a contract you don't really think things in advance because you know we're doing things uh, old school i don't know we're friends yeah, we're just buddy yeah. yeah let's do it man this kind of discourse is fine if you don't intend to make it your career because you know it's it's also fun to have side projects and just you know pick up the guitar and then jam but that's not that's not what you want if you want to make this into your career that's you should run away from these people <laughs> never start working without a contract that's a great specific piece of advice right there yeah, and one of the things uh, m maybe you'll you'll tell me more and teach me about this, but I think I read something regarding music marketing specifically, where there's a difference, or marketing in general even there's a difference between the price of something and the value of something, and people will associate the first number you tell them with the value of your work, and then if you say Okay, let's let's negotiate. Let's let's uh, see if we can't do like less music or less instruments in the music, or or uh, have more time, uh, um, further away uh, deadline, and then reduce the price. People will still associate your work with the first number you give them, which is mm. the value. And then my advice would be always give a first number which you think is slightly 
too much. And you're like, I would be satisfied with like 10% less or 5% less. But, you know, let's just uh, be honest with ourselves. And it's a lot of work and it's, yeah. it's taxing. Yeah. And we, I think I, in my case, I would have been inclined to do uh, the opposite, being like, oh, you know, I'm I'm starting out and I'm just a musician. I'm just a composer and I do what I love. And society also uh, incites you into this uh, vicious circle where you're, you're not really working, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not lifting heavy weights. And that's true. You're not. Malik, do you have some experience with this? And that, that can be true. Also is true, but on the other end, you're a highly specialized, highly uh, dedicated professional, and you often work nights and weekend, although I don't do that anymore, but this would also be a great piece of advice to my uh, younger self, stop working at, I don't know, 5, 6, 7 p.m. Just stop answering your email stop answering your discord disconnect and go play a game go live your life go uh, uh play with your kids if you have some and also weekends don't answer anything mm-hmm. during the weekend some stuff i i never took it too far but if you don't as someone i love uh, once said being on your own being a freelance and being your 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 own boss often means working for an imbecile and so from your own mistakes as your boss and you have to think okay i'm my boss what would my boss say to me and what would i say to my boss and then if these two people can find a right compromise then you're probably on the right track but don't neglect yeah don't neglect mental health don't neglect sleep yeah, you see, you see a lot of people being really proud of not sleeping or working late, and I can understand why they would do it. In in America, I don't know if how much this is slang, but like we say, hustle culture a lot. Yes, right. Like yes. against the I idea of hustle culture. I, I'm not uh, disparaging people doing it because I can totally understand the the amount of work coming your way, and there's no possible humanly possible way to do it without hiring an entire new team so you have to hustle and it's not by choice i imagine but then you also kind of get into the rhythm of it and you the more you say yes the less you can say no yeah <laughs> and yeah. people get used to it so oh. it's when people respect your boundaries there they can be your friends because this is an industry where everyone is passionate and they really they really want to make the best possible work of art i i really don't agree with people saying oh my god devs are, devs are lazy and uh, devs uh, devs have an agenda or whatever they just want to make a great game yeah and they want to do it while retaining uh, their mental health and social lives what is next for you? I know you obviously uh, you can't talk about whatever projects you're working on currently, but where? But long term in your career as a composer, what kind of projects do you want to be working on? What do you want to do? And how are you setting yourself up for that right now? That's a very interesting question in my case because it seems 
that I've hit the, this is my, uh, Chance of Sarah is my second ever game score. It's the first um, actually, you know, developed score. Previous one was 15 minutes long. So this this is essentially my first um, and how many minutes? How many minutes was the was chance? Eighty two. Wow! Yeah. And it feels like I've hit the the bullseye because obviously, if they hired me, it was because all the music they heard corresponded to their needs, which were many. And obviously, for me, it was like the perfect example of something that would probably not happen again because i'm i'm really passionate about traditional music from all around the world i've been teaching brazilian percussion i've been uh, learning about african music about um, music from uh, my country specifically traditional music and this is something i really wish to explore and you you can never explore it 100% there's just it's too rich and then you know first project first big project you get to write like five different musical universes like this with traditional instruments with uh perfect clients it would seem and all of a sudden you're like can it only go down from there so uh, i i i think i want to keep doing new things and I'm very fortunate to be able to do it with the next project I'm doing right now, which I can't talk about, obviously. But it's something very different from Chance of Senar, and I couldn't be happier. And I'm very grateful that I get to do something so different. Because I think as artists, we have this tendency to fall into patterns, I guess. And I, you know, it's, it's how our brain works. But it's it's one of my great fears that uh, I write something and I'm like, how how is this uh, different from this other project I did and how did I personally progress? So I'm I'm very happy with the project I'm working on right now. I have two other games coming up in uh, the next months or years. So I'm really I'm really happy about this. So yeah, Fantastic. I guess yes, it is. I guess. Most importantly, I would hate to be, you know, stuck in the same styles forever or same methods. I'd like to do things differently. Maybe well, one of my big dreams would be to assemble a team of musicians and just to uh, lock ourselves up in a studio for two weeks and uh, bang on stuff and find what's what... the percussionist in you. <laughs> what can I say? And just improvise and collectively find something that people would say i never quite heard something like this before and that would be that would be my dream project i want to to end this uh i want to get because this uh is kind of what we're doing here we're blending uh, music and video games right and talking about these two mm -hmm. different worlds so why don't you give us i want a, a music recommendation and a game recommendation off the top of your head okay. the soundtrack from a small french game called en garde which is a fencing game it, it's from 23 jean-claude charlier the game is called en garde with the exclamation point and the soundtrack is on youtube okay and 
This one is you. You want to listen to this one? What's so cool about it? Uh, it is so rich and explosive, and there's you can listen to it twenty times and find twenty different things that you haven't heard before. The orchestration is so well made, and the mixing and everything. I don't know. I find it really fascinating. Also, because I would be utterly incapable of writing something like this, so that might be why. The other piece would be from from The Witcher Three, which is arguably the 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 game that don't need more people talking about it. But <laughs> I, it's it's one of these, and I um, remember it in the few interviews I gave. I didn't talk about The Witcher 3 and how it influenced me, which is a great mistake, which I am preparing today, because um, it did really strike me. This is an area that I didn't really explore musically, you know, Eastern Europe, just a little bit, but then the whole uh, Slavic part of the continent and the, the culture around this. And obviously, Witcher 3 is one of the games that represented so well because it has all this literary uh, material behind it. And the music is extraordinary. And that, that's what they did, what I just said. They went into a studio with a, a band called Percival Schuttenbach, which is the name of the character in the books. And they just not banged, but strummed and, and uh, bowed on stuff. And they just wrote incredible music. I think there were two composers, Polish composers, if I'm not mistaken. And then um, the the band couldn't read sheet music. And they still did something that you... I mean, I haven't heard anything like it before or since. Especially the string sounds totally yeah. hypnotized me with this... We're talking about the pure sound of the violin. This is not it. This is like the grittiest possibly possible sound you could get from a possibly a, I don't know what it is. Probably a, some kind of viola da gamba or something. Right. In, in the vicinity of that, but yeah, it really it really shaped the way I I wanted parts of my writing to sound like. The parts, the, the more somber parts, let's say, are very heavily influenced by The Witcher 3. At least the, the you know, the traditional part of the score. A game that I played, don't really... I know, it, it can be hard as an adult to yes. actually have time to sit down and play games. Yeah, this is this is the curse of our profession. Oh yeah, what, one of my main pitches uh, for, for when we started was we're we just don't have time to play games anymore. So if we don't do it for work, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> yes, let's <laughs> let's make it our job. Yes. And Baldur's Gate 3 just ate 100 hours of my time. I know. And... I'm 130 <laughs> hours in and I only just got to Act 3. <laughs> yeah, I don't regret anything. <laughs> what, what class are you playing, by the way? I have to know. Warrior. Warrior. But, but I need to... I need to do a run with bard i was gonna say musicians have to play bard and the dark urge bard at that just <laughs> i've played Baldur's gate 3 i've played uh, stray gods stray gods maybe although it is a big game but i feel i i expected it to totally explode 
but that that might be my uh, very biased way of uh, considering anything Austin Wintry works on is unattainable and should <laughs> it should be venerated as such when you look at how complex the music is in this game and how it evolves it follows your choices i don't know if you're familiar with the the stray gods no it is a video game musical wow which means you're playing characters that are singing and you decide how they how their personalities will evolve and you have like four different paths to take this and you can make like something we should be interested in and every decision <laughs> changes the music and the lyrics and obviously the story and this is like when i saw that i was like who else who apart from austin winter you could stuff like that and it's it's incredible i think he did a lot of um behind the scenes and i think it's 90 something sessions recording wow sessions. i'm guessing a huge chunk of the budget went into music right which for a musical makes sense it makes sense and it's amazing i would i would advise anyone to play it yeah that's that's my okay. pick well thank you thank you thank you so much for joining us this has just been Likewise. everything we could have wanted and more i'm glad i'm glad i've had a blast too and uh, if you want to chat at another point in time or speak about something else let me know What a fun interview that was. I learned so much about music and video games that I really didn't expect to know. Thank you again, Mr. Brunet, uh, for hanging out with us. That was so much fun. What's next for the audio files? Pretty sure we're doing Forza Horizon next. Forza Horizon 5. That's going to be fun because we're going to get to dive into licensed music and games. Yep. The, the unscratched itch of our channel so far. The audio files is a movement of people dedicated to elevating the stature of video game music. And we're really, really excited to have your support. And and until next time, play with sound.